You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the writer Marianne Keyes. Her books such as Watermelon, Lucy Sullivan is Getting Married and This Charming Man are in the canon of the modern woman's literary identity and have sold over 35 million copies. Her books explore a cross-section of humanity, looking at themes of love, bereavement, family, men and women, feminist issues, mental health and addiction, and have been translated into 33 languages, a testament to the universality of her work. But no matter how dark the subject matter, she approaches it with her signature warmth, humour and through her wildly flawed but deeply lovable, relatable female characters. Her latest book, The Break, published in paperback by Penguin on May 31st, poses the question of how to make long-term love last, an area she's had some experience in. The Break came about when I read a couple of articles. Now, this is a good few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, newspaper articles about how monogamy is changing because of our increased life expectancy. You see, the fact that now we're expected to live till at least 90 means that people say who are in their 30s or their 40s and they're very happy with their person and they don't kind of have any intention of of ending it with them. But they're looking at another maybe 50 or 60 years with them and they're getting the fear. Like this is what people were saying in the articles. And, you know, it was different in the days where like, you know, you could kind of expect to drop dead at 60. You know, like even if you weren't entirely happy, you think, Asher, look at I'll stick it out because there isn't that much longer to go. And uh, it would be an awful inconvenience, um, you know, kind of going through all that upheaval now. Mm. And so people are sort of getting that kind of bricks piled on the chest feeling of suffocation at the thought of never flirting with another person or never having sex with another person before they die. So these people, and they, they did it in varying ways, like some people took time-limited um, breaks from their marriage, like for three months or six months or a year or whatever. And uh, another one I read, she lived with her husband at the weekends and then during the week she had an open marriage. Mm. And I thought, and many things when I heard about this, I thought, God, I would hate that to happen to me. But I thought it's a really interesting thing to write about because there are a lot of books written about midlife crises and they're almost always ones where the man is portrayed as a complete fool who's just like totally lost the like he he's a ridiculous character mm. in in these books you know that like he runs off with a 19-year-old who obviously has no interest in him other than his money and you know and and he buys a car that he is far too old and unflashy for you know and they're always presented as figures to mock but I think I suppose having gone through some a kind of a midlife crisis of my own that nobody really goes through a midlife crisis without experiencing real despair mm. a real fear and real soul searching about like what have you done with your life so I wanted to write a book about 
a couple, a man who has had two big losses and he's suddenly re-evaluating everything and he knows that he still loves his partner, but he knows that he needs something extra or something more. So I wanted to be sympathetic to both parties. I didn't want to just write a kind of... um, you know, those ones where like they put prawns and the curtain rings and, you know, and <laughs> cut off all, you know, one leg off all his jeans and stuff like that. I want it to be about a real relationship yeah. where they do love each other and they have a long history and they're good to each other. And yet this longing has come on him and it's got to be addressed. So that was that was it. I wanted to do justice to a midlife crisis novel. Yeah, that kind of non-judgmental approach, I think, is so interesting. And something that I read that you said about the break is that you encountered when you were doing research on these people that were having these breaks, were having these wobbles about their life or about their marriage or about the routine that they found themselves in, which is you said that we're a stranger to ourselves and you only have access to a small part of your consciousness. So. When you have these kind of seemingly reckless midlife crises, often it's linked into something really primal or really existential or something relating. You know, you told a story about how a woman went and had an affair with a 19 year old. Yes. And what was the connection there? She had cancer. You know, it. you know, so on, on some level, her body is sending her was sendi- sending her signals and saying, live, you mm. know, live mm. urgently. Yeah. And I do feel that thing of we are strangers to ourselves because I suppose we think of ourselves as civilized, but we are also animals. We are animals who live and die. And like all animals, we fear death. Mm. And there is a clock ticking in every single one of us. And like some people navigate it better than others. But like, I think for a lot of people in midlife, when a parent dies, they're suddenly slammed against the realisation of their own mortality. And we, you know, we humans experience it sometimes on a cellular level, like literally, Mm. you know, and that sets up a longing that is completely in conflict with the rational civilized part of us which says you can't do this this is not the behavior of a good person yes and so i think we can't be too harsh i mean obviously there are some people that it's perfectly acceptable to be harsh about them you know we all know them there are those who are just beyond the pale they are unforgivable like their behavior never changes and uh, and they are unredeemable but for a lot of people who have behaved well and they have like you know they have form as one as a good egg if they suddenly out of the blue start behaving in ways that we disapprove of, it's worth looking at what's going on. Yeah, and can go so far beyond just a crisis of ego. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's got that so well put because ego is a very destructive, well, not always, but I suppose, yeah, it can be like if it mm. pushes people into hurting people they love, mm. it's destructive. But id, id is a different thing. It Mm. is our life force. Mm. And if that pops up and starts running the show, like, yeah, you know, we we really have very little say over it. Yeah. And and also, you know, I'm very, very interested in polyamory. And I'm so interested in the fact that you said that you think that this kind of crisis of commitment is 
more of a modern affliction because we're living longer because I've mm. said this for years and I think that's also why people aren't getting their shit together until their mid-30s. Yeah. Because we're living so much, much longer, longer that our adolescence has lengthened in yes. proportion. So I think, I agree with you that marriage suddenly feels so overwhelming at yeah. 30 if you yeah. live to 100. Yeah, 70 years. I you mean, know. come on. Yeah, and <laughs> I think... When, when I've spoken to people who practice polyamory, the most persuasive thing that I heard is a woman who said, falling in love is the most life-affirming and exciting and wonderful feeling in the world where, you know, that moment that everyone has where you walk around and you notice the blossom has a scent for the first time and, yes. you know, you would empty your pockets for any person yes. that asked you for anything. Yes. You know, it's, it's an incredible feeling. And she said, why would you only want to limit yourself to do that once once, and that you can't do that ever again? And I said, well, you know, because you can't have everything and maybe that's sort of Western greed and you can't have this like depth of friendship in history with someone and then also have that kind of feeling of excitement all the time. But I saw what she meant. I saw both yeah, sides of it yes. in that moment. I suppose some people might see marriage as a sort of endurance test. Yes, and that's an awful shame. Mm. Like, it's not meant to be that either. Um, but like that feeling that you described of, you know, suddenly the world is in technicolor mm. and everything is beautiful and everything is lovely. And it is, that's a lovely way to feel. But you can feel that way about other things other than a romantic partner. And also, I would like to make the case for a less kind of, a less technicolor long-term love mm. you know that there's an awful lot of the word I'm going to use is comfort which sounds like such a dull word but there's an awful lot of comfort in knowing somebody really well knowing they've got your back you know it mightn't be fireworks all the time but it still makes the world a much nicer place yes. to live that way yes and that feeling that you have someone completely on your team yeah that can make the world feel technicolor in a different way. In a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in the break, you look at all different kinds of themes. You look at how to stay in love, monogamy, aging, and you also look at a kind of political strand. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. I knew while Hugh, the husband, was away that Amy and her three girls were going to experience some sort of crisis. And initially, that crisis was that they were burgled and it was very traumatic. But while I was writing it, OK, for those who don't know, abortion is illegal in Ireland in all circumstances, except when the life of the mother is in grave danger. And abortion is punishable by 14 years in prison. So basically, if you get raped and you get pregnant and you take the abortion pills, you will get longer in prison than your rapist will. It's such a disgraceful situation and it really ties in with how Irish women have been marketed by the church, by the Catholic church, as sexless beings who are just portable wombs, mm. you know, wombs who cook. Is It's a very good way of putting it. And while I was writing it, there was more and more agitation coming from younger women. You see, I love I love women like you, Dolly. Like, I love 
you know, your generation, I'm sorry, I make myself sound like I'm a thousand years old, but like you have such a great sense of your rights in the world. And so women of your age in Ireland started protesting Mm. this awful law. Like people my age, I've been so loaded up with the kind of shame and guilt that it was a lot harder to protest. Um, But you weren't given the space as well. No, like, I mean, you know, any time I ever spoke out about anything, I was shamed for it. But like these younger women, they're not shameable. Mm. And their courage gave me courage. And it became clear that I had a forum to address this issue. So if an Irish woman needs an abortion, she has to travel usually to the UK, sometimes to Holland. And it's a crappy thing to have to do. It involves an awful lot of money, a plane fare or a ferry fare, um, a hotel, because, you know, usually you can't fly back on the same day because it's not recommended. Um, the cost of the procedure. And then there's all the emotional costs as well, like that nobody can talk about it. There is so much secrecy and shame, you know, the women who have travelled. You know, it's just there is no opportunity for them to come back and talk about what they've gone through and to process it in any way. And so I thought if I wrote a storyline where Sophie, who is 17, gets pregnant and has to come to the UK for an abortion. And if I just wrote about it, it kind of in factual detail, like I didn't want to over emotionalize the issue. I just wanted to lay it out. Yeah. You know, you have to get up really early in the morning. You've got to take time off work. You've got to lie to your colleagues. You know, she had to be taken out of school. And I was afraid when I was writing it. I was afraid of the backlash. And I was also afraid of something that I can't even articulate. It's just I was so programmed to be afraid from such an early age, you know, by the church, by my teachers, by my parents, my poor parents who knew no better. Like they were a product of the the system as well. But I thought, you know, Irish women have been so good to me that this is my gift to them. Mm. I will tell this story and hope that it impacts, you know, because I think a lot of Irish women who might regard themselves as kind of anti-abortion might read my books. And if they read this fairly dispassionate account of what it means to go through when you have a crisis pregnancy, that they might reconsider how they'd vote in the forthcoming referendum, which is on May the 25th. And it was a prescient time for you to write about it because, as you said, the vote is coming up and there are many ways in which people can vote if they're not in Ireland. Yes. For people who are resident in the UK but still have the right to vote in Ireland, well, if they're an Irish citizen, that's all they need. Um, Mm. If they want to go back to Ireland to vote on May the 25th, there's a great organisation called Abroad for Yes, which is financing plane fares home for those who who want to vote. What are your thoughts now on those breaks? Having written the book and having spoken, I'm sure, to a lot of people and done a lot of research, did you, and yourself being in a very long-term and very successful relationship, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on it now after writing the book? Well, what was really interesting was the amount of women I met who really wanted one. And they weren't the kind of women that I would have expected 
you know, they were middle aged and they were middle class. And it was like they regarded their husband as this inconvenience, like the dog coming in, like doing like dog hairs on the couch. Um, <laughs> you know, that like all he does is mess the place and annoy them. Yeah. And I think fair play, you know, if you want to do it, you know, I suppose there are different kinds of marriages. And if you feel like you're just living two parallel lives where you intersect quite civilly, I wouldn't be fulfilled by that. Yes. Um, and I, I suppose I would want to kind of think, listen, I'm off for six months. I'm, I'm going to see what else is out there. Mm. And if it isn't any better, I'll come back. I mean, I wouldn't blame those people. You see, I thought it was always going to be men who were far more interested in the idea of a break. And no, it was, I mean, I encounter more women readers than men. But I, I suppose I thought women readers would more react kind of, oh, my God, that would be awful. I would hate it to happen to me. But no, they were really quite interested in the whole thing, which was a big surprise and a kind of a, an encouraging one, really. Yeah. Well, I think there's also the, the argument with as women get older, certainly I've seen with women that I know getting older, is that as you shed the pressures and expectations yeah. of youth that you can kind of finally relax into who you are. Yeah, and I mean, I completely agree. And one of the things that needs to be mentioned is testosterone. Mm. Like, you know, once you get to the perimenopause, I mean, I feel kind of weird talking about it because you're so young, but like you do, your testosterone levels are elevated, like in women, and our estrogen levels are whatever the the opposite of elevated is, sorry, the word (laughs) depressed. And, uh, And suddenly women are far less inclined to nurture Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they are far more about themselves and thinking, you know, what about me? Yeah. You know, they think more like a man. Mm. And obviously that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So like, that's why, you know, when women hit the menopause, they suddenly are enraged by all the demands that are made on them because that their testosterone is telling them, this is nonsense. Mm. What are you doing looking after all of these people? Where are you in this? Yeah. And and that, you would imagine, would be the right time to go, yeah. screw it, I'm off for I'm six off. months. I'm off while yeah. I, yeah, while I'm, you know, while I'm still, well, you know, I think I think women remain beautiful for as long as they as they want to. But yeah, while you're still, you've still got your joints, while your feet yeah, your still faculties. work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Marianne, I'd like you to tell me a story of first love. It is mortifying. It is shaming. It is so bad. Okay, my first love was on Donny Osmond. And uh, it's just, I was nine, you know, I knew no better. I lived in a small country that the telly didn't start until six in the evening. And we never had cartoons. Sometimes they'd say like cartoons are coming, you know, if the transmission broke and it would be just like, crappy Czech political cartoons with very strange, you know, atonal violin music. We got nothing, you know, we got very little. And uh, so when I saw Donny Osmond with his lovely American teeth and his velvet peaked cap and uh, and his lovely 
skin. I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And this is before, like long before I had heard any of his incredibly awful records. But <laughs> I was mad about him. And I used to fantasise a lot. And I did an awful lot of my fantasising at Mass because Mass is very, very boring. Like, especially the sermon bit. And it's just like, blah, 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 burn in hell, blah, blah, blah. You're awful sinners, are blah, 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 unredeemable. You know, so I would be there. And I used to plan the house I would live in with Donny Osmond. Oh, I know it's pathetic, isn't it? And no, so, and I sometimes used I used to, do to the draw same. the houses oh. and and plan the rooms. And we had all kinds of oh my god! And we had a sweet room that was full of sweets. <laughs> and um, and I was always a bit worried about Marie. Him and Marie seemed a bit too close for my liking. And so I would have arguments, you know, in my head where like I would make him choose between me or Marie. And initially she's he did She's at the house her. too often. Yes, exactly. She's coming over here and eating our sweets <laughs> and in our recording <laughs> studio, Donny, and in our bowling alley. Um, <laughs> and, so and he would dither. But eventually he would chose me, you know. Yeah, so but that's because he's a good man. He's he is a, a family good man. man. He is, so he would yeah, dither. Yeah, he would. And actually now I would admire him for dithering. Yeah. You know, because blood is thicker than water and all of that, you know. And I think it's, when I do these interviews, anyone who I interview over 40, when they talk about first love, it's normally someone that they first saw on TV. Yeah. And I think I can't quite appreciate in the world that I grew up in where I had so many channels and I had yeah. the internet and I had just how much more heightened that longing would be oh, when you have yeah. so little of yeah. them to lust over. Yeah, it's so weird because, I mean, Jackie magazine was the one I read and that was all. That was my only access to pictures of him mm. or news about him. You know, I got by on breadcrumbs like we all did. Yeah. And yeah, but then your imagination, that fantasy. Oh, it, it just, it had room to kind of go wild. Yeah. And I mean, I used to plan my clothes and everything that I would wear when I met him. And even my underwear. Like, I mean, I was nine, but like I was planning bras and stuff like that. Like, you know, just in case. And who was your first love? My first love was... um. I was 15 and uh, we went out with each other for a year and a half and, um, oh God, it was ridiculous. It was nothing but door slamming and shouting and misunderstandings and you were looking at her and no, I wasn't. And um, it was fabulous. Do you know, it's exactly what you want at that age. High drama, like everything heightened. You know, things that happen at that age are just more intense than they'll ever be at any other time in your life, I think. I think an awful lot of people get stuck on their first love. You know, they kind of, even though it breaks up, obviously, because as most first loves do, they kind of get stuck and they're waiting to feel those feelings again. Yeah. But those feelings are are only generated because of the maelstrom of hormones that you are at totally, the time. Yeah. And when your hormones calm down, as they do, like when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, you're not going to, be able to access that kind of craziness Mm. again. It's for the best, really. We Mm. can't be going around like that. Mm. You know, like nothing would get done. Yeah, Um, yeah, because you do lose your mind when you're you're that That age. Yeah, 
And yeah. also, I think so much of it, you know, that there's a reason that falling in love is called falling. You know, you yes. have to. And when you're 15, you don't know what's going to hit you. So you kind of free fall. Yes. And you learn to self-protect and you learn to kind of create these boundaries. Yes. Because later. you know how you could be hurt. Yes. Yeah. 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 But you're a complete innocent mm. in, in the first time. Um, and you have no armour whatsoever. Mm. And, and that can only happen once, I think. Oh, totally, mm. totally. Yeah, like if it keeps on happening, I don't know. Maybe it's time to read a book about <laughs> about codependence or or, or something. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're right that people do sometimes want to recreate that. Yeah, yeah. But I also worry about people who get stuck and say, "Yeah, I really love this new woman." But she doesn't make me feel like the one when I was 15 made me feel. It's like, get a hold of yourself. Of course she doesn't. <laughs> You're different now. Yeah. It's not the fault of the woman. It's it's nobody's fault. It's just you have changed. Mm. Those feelings are no longer available to you. Mm. Move on. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, those feelings are no longer available. So it sounds like you're a bit of a romantic teenager. Oh, completely. Like I still am. Mm. You know, I despise myself for it but I would like everybody in the world who wants to be coupled up to be happily coupled up I just want everyone to be happy and nobody to be lonely and nobody to be jealous and nobody to be insecure yeah. like if I ruled the world well actually no you couldn't make that happen no not even laws could make that happen <laughs> um, but yeah if I had a, a magic wand that's what I would do there's other people who would buy everyone a dog. You'd buy everyone a husband. Uh, yeah, I would buy everyone a husband. <laughs> I would. Only if they wanted one, mm. you know, mm. because I, I really understand that there are people who are just uncomfortable in relationships. They don't want to be, you know, corralled. Mm. Um, yeah. But I think that you're probably very in touch with a sense of kind of longing. And I, I feel mm. it quite a lot. Yeah. It's like I put up a picture on Instagram a few months ago and it's by this painter called Ron Hicks and he does these beautiful really vivid paintings of people kissing and I did a caption saying no matter who you are no matter how much of a bad person you are I hope at one point in your life everyone is snogged like a Ron Hicks painting and this picture was like my most liked picture it was shared on Twitter and it obviously really keyed into this great longing that people have for romance and for passion yes Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that I've really struggled with is reconciling feminism Mm. with that longing. You and me both. Yeah. And like, I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. I don't think it makes a person, a woman weak to say, I would really like to meet someone special. You know, you can still acknowledge that the world is unfair, that systemically, men have far more power and far more money than women do. And I mean, you can do what you can to try to change that. Yes. But even though the system is weighted against women, I still feel that it is worth having relationships with men. I mean, I don't think we can change the world one man at a time. No, I don't. You know, I mean, it's got to be done well, by education, educating children, I think, is one way. Definitely. You know, and, and protests. But I don't, I mean, for some, for some women, they simply won't be able to engage with men at all. Like, they, mm-hmm. you know, they are just so repulsed by and, and the inequality. Yeah. yeah, so do yeah. I. Um, 
But for those who want a relationship, there's no shame in it. There is no shame in it. We're all human beings. I think, you know, a lot of us are programmed to want, you know, a person who is unique, Mm. who loves us and Mm. we love them in a way that nobody else does. And that we shouldn't apologise for it. No, and I think it, as you say, it is a difficult tension. I think it's about recognising there was definitely a long period of my life where I was so angry at men. Yes. And it was manifesting in me behaving really badly in relationships. Yeah. Because they were sort of my unconscious yeah. punching bag because I just totally. felt so indignant and upset and yes. betrayed by them for yeah. so many years. And I think it's about gently and compassionately realising yeah. that, that it's that individual is different to a patriarchal culture. Beautifully put. Yeah. And you can love that person. And also, as you said, doing it from the inside, because the way that heterosexual relationships work and the tradition of romance often is kind of unfair or weighted towards the yeah. man. But it's about unpicking that within your relationship. Yep. Yes. And creating yeah. your own rules. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it can be done. Mm. Like well, look it, at you and Tony. Yeah, I mean, like, it genuinely can be done. Like, in my relationship, God, I feel so afraid even talking about it because I, I always, whenever I talk about him, I'm so afraid of being, you know, smited by the God of the smoke women. I love you women. so much. You're so Catholic. Every <laughs> yeah. time I hear you say something even vaguely lovely about yeah. Tony and your writing, yeah. you say, and I know I'm not yeah. tempting yeah. fate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but like, he is not threatened by the fact that I'm the breadwinner. Yes. You know, he's so cool with it. He's so supportive of me. Yeah. Um, he just is. You know, because I see other women in relationships with men who are threatened by their success. Mm. And you know what? It's not even really the man's fault either. Because like, you know, performative masculinity, mm. they're taught that they have to be the ones who earn the most money. Yeah. And they are really uncertain about what their role is. And they feel shame or and embarrassment they feel shame. or like they've let yeah. someone down. And yeah. confusion because mm. the world isn't supposed to be this way. Mm. And, you know, and ultimately perhaps resentment against the woman for showing him up. And that's another reason why the patriarchy needs to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Deconstructed, dismantled. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Because men suffer. Oh, totally. Also. Totally. It's, it's shit for everyone. It's shit for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Even except maybe for those who are at the very, very top who have most of the money and the power, you know. But most men who are wage slaves, you know, most regular men, sexism impacts them. Yeah. And I remember reading you saying that you had people warning you that when Tony started working yeah. with you yeah. and what's how do you, what's his role, do you say? He's the administrator. Mm. Like, he does everything to do with travel, interview requests. I mean, all the things that come in, you know, about doing festivals or contributing to an anthology or, you know, giving my books of the month for something or other. Like, he does all of that. But he reads your drafts as he well. He does, yeah. he does, he does. He does, and I trust him completely. Mm. Like, he's very kind, but he doesn't flim-flam me. I love that word. I might say it again. He doesn't <laughs> flim-flam me. He won't tell me something that is good yeah. if, if it isn't. And that's invaluable, really. It's wonderful, you know, that somebody can kind of lovingly say, yeah. no, no, no. This is a load of shite. Mm. You, you need to rethink this. 
you know, you're great, you're better than this. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, anything that is in kind of vaguely readable form, yeah. I'll give it to him. But he, I remember reading you saying that when he took on that role and started working with you in that way, that you would have warnings from people and they would say, this will have a negative impact on your yeah. marriage. He will feel emasculated and then yeah. he may, the way you put it, was re-emasculate himself by having an affair. Yes. Yeah, like people were very, very worried that this was not the natural order. Mm. And sooner or oh, later, ridiculous, he would seek it? to re-establish yeah. the natural order yeah. by, you know, going out and being very masculine, by testosterosing himself around the place. And... uh I mean, to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't happened. Mm. If he has done it, I haven't found out about it, which is nearly as good. (laughs) (laughs) On to a story of unrequited love. Oh, my God. Okay. I mean, I've had many of them in my messy life, but... I think the one that causes me the greatest pain is my unrequited love with clothes. Like, I adore clothes. And uh, that's my mother's fault. One of the many things she's done to me. No, I'm joking. No, it's funny. She always loved clothes and um, I love them too. And I'm the wrong, I'm too short. I'm too stout. I'm all wrong. Marianne, you're not stout. You're like a china doll. I'm not. No, I'm absolutely not. I struggle. Every day is I go to war with food. Food and clothes, body image. Like It's an awful thing. But like, that's what it is to be a woman. Yeah. Like in this feckin' world. Yeah. Like being quite honest, I have never, ever put a bite of food into my mouth without feeling guilty. Ever. No matter how little I eat in any one meal, there's always a little voice that says, you could have eaten less, mm. you know, like, and it's not our fault. But yeah, I love clothes so much. I would love to be uh, one of them girls who lives in Mew Mew clothes. I love, love them. Yeah, they're mean. so fun and they're quirky and they're pretty and the colours are gorgeous. And yeah, my unrequited love is all clothes, but especially I Mew think Mew. you look great in Mew Mew. One of those little sort of, you know, those boucle little skirt suits that they do. And oh, no, no. I mean, I've tried. Um, I've tried and uh, and no, I'm afraid they sniggered at me. Um, they pretended not to. No, they're lovely girls, really. Um, I went in there and got kind of trapped. If you ever go into a spendy shop and you're not certain, never accept the glass of water that they offer you. Never. They find you browsing and then they say, oh, um... This might be nice. Um, I'll just put it in the um, changing room. And can I get you a glass of water? Never, ever accept it because you will be in the changing room. You will be sweating. You will be trying to get yourself into that dress. There is no hope that it will fit you if you're me. And yet... You, you enter still, into a contract. Yeah, I, I still felt like I had to buy it. You didn't it, buy it. No, I didn't no. buy it. But no. it, it took every ounce of my gumption. Mm. Love, that's another good word. It's gumption. a great word. Gumption. I had to call on all my gumption reserves to scurry out of there shouting, uh, thanks, uh, lovely glass of water. I, I'll be back 
sometime. Goodbye. It's bad for a people pleaser, those high oh, commission shops. Oh, yes. I can't have yes. to do it online. Go on, yes. porter. Yes. Yeah, then you yes. can return it. Yes, people pleaser, you're hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I can't buy things you're right in real life anymore. Yeah. Once I've made eye contact, it's all over. You know, I might as well just kind of hand them my wallet and say, take what you want. It's grand. <laughs> So who who's your kind of style icon? Style icon. You see, I like I like Bjork. Um, you know, I like people who who don't care, but I like people who wear clashing things. Mm. Um, Do you know you've got all the makings of an influencer, Marianne? <laughs> you've got the social media following. <laughs> How do you apply? I've often wondered. I, yeah. I, would try, I would try a hand at being an influencer. Seriously. Because I like the clashing clothes. Or, yeah. You've got, you like the clashing clothes. You've got a great sense of style. Oh, God, you've got you're lots lovely. of people following you already. I would, I would email some brands. All right. <laughs> for the laugh. Yeah, I do, um, I do a column for the Irish Times. <gasps> I'll tell you who I love. I've just remembered. Wes Anderson's wife. Oh, okay. Human Maloof. I am besotted with her. Like I go to, like I fall in love a lot, mostly with women. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, like before Human, it was Greta Gerwig. Oh, I'm still in love yes, with her. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh no, I still am. I just, I accumulate. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I just want to take them. There's a place in Ireland called Eddie Rockets, which is, I think, do you have a thing here called Johnny Rockets or... No, um, what's Eddie Rockets? It's a, it's an American style diner, and ah. you sit in vinyl vinyl booths. And so, I would like to take Human Maloof or Greta Gerwig or Nigella Lawson there, and we would sit opposite each other, and I would comb her hair, I would give her my bracelets, and everything she ordered, I would have, yeah. and I'd suggest that we'd have the malted milk. And then, if she said, "Oh no, 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 I'm lactose intolerant," I'd say, "Oh yeah, me too," <laughs> even though I'm not. Um, and I'd be just laughing really loudly at all their jokes before they got to the end of them and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so Human Maloof is actually the Gucci muse. She is the, the okay. muse of your man. What's his name? Alessandro Michel. Alessandro right. Michel. Um, yeah, because she goes around like a Victorian. Like she's got all these high necked frocks and her hair is very odd. It's sort of boofy and backcombed and it looks like there's hairpins in there and she's just completely herself mm. and I mean the irony is that I want to be exactly like her but yeah she'd be my type now people who are unafraid mm. or I'd like to be a woman who goes around in a boiler suit and with a big red bandana tying up her hair yeah. you know and Doc Martens yeah. someone who strides stridily in a stridey way, wearing a satchel. Yes, I'd like to be. I like the. I like the idea of being like a vintage lady. God, yes. You well, know who yeah. dresses like head to toe. Yeah, I do like a sixties like Barbarella, but really yes. commit to it. Yes, exactly. Silver knee boots. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would never like you know those kind of sofa days where you where you're wearing like yes. tracks. Yeah, yeah. That would, would never happen. happen. Yeah. You would be on the sofa in your little crimpling. Um, apricot coloured mini skirt your yeah your silver knee boots with the holes in the sides you know yes exactly um, and yeah and a massive massive beehive mm, yeah. yeah and I would never slip out of character ever yeah 
you know, when when the um, the DPD man, do you have DPD here who yes, brings the ASOS? Yeah. yeah, like you would answer the door to him and your fabulous long eyelashes. Yeah, yeah and like a house, yeah. like a house. A flowery, a yeah. flowery, I beg you, please. Purple, orange, and we need one other colour. A flowery house coat. House coat, yeah. that's the, yeah. Th- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the market for a house coat. Yes. <laughs> Onto a subject that I always love reading or listening to you talk about, which is passionate love. It seems to me like your 20s were a time of, of sort of chaos and, and yes. very big highs and, and, and very big lows um, across all areas and yeah. in love from what yes. I gather. Yes, yeah. I mean, I just had the unerring ability to, um, to go after men who just, I suppose, had no real interest in me. Mm. And because, and I, mean, I had no idea at the time, but because I had so little self-esteem, I wanted to pick somebody who made me feel as shit about myself as I thought I deserved. Is that what you think it is? It was just self-esteem? I think it was two things. I think it was low self-esteem. I also think that being in a relationship where there's a lot of drama, where there's a lot of rows, and reconciliations, I think the emotion generated by those events was kind of good at keeping me away from what I was really feeling, which was terrified and despair. So like, even like the awful rows were, they shifted focus from me feeling about myself. Mm. And then the reconciliations were so joyous. I mean, like a lot of the time, I feel like I was addicted to relief, mm. you know, like that feeling when you think, oh, my God, I've lost him forever. And then you win him back. Yeah. Like that is OK. I've never taken heroin, but I feel like it would be like the rush of a very powerful drug. Because it's kind of hurtling towards death and then. Coming yes. Back and to then life. exactly. And then the high that I would get from it. Now, I had didn't have the language. I had no understanding to articulate what was going on for me. I simply thought that I was mad about Mr. X and that like if I kept at it that he would eventually fall for me. But I think I was acting out something entirely different and it was just, it was generating fake emotions in order to stop me feeling the pain of being me. And it's kind of play acting, isn't it? It is play acting because, you know, looked at dispassionately and when I look back now, like there was no way that me and any of them men would have ever survived. Mm. You know, I had no interest in things like compatibility mm. or or shared political beliefs or or anything. Humour or Humor. shared interests. No, no, no. Yeah. Or kindness. Yeah. You know, I had no interest in them and how they treated me. You know, bad behaviour just seemed acceptable. God, it's a weird one. And then yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated as to why we do it. And I think what happens is once you do it once, yeah, you then conflate yes. love with, with feeling insecure, yes. feeling, feeling that af- relief, yeah. feeling fear. Yeah. So then when you don't have that. Yeah, you don't recognise it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do feel it's one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. 
the fact that like, I mean, I do think those relationships for me were very much tied in with my drinking mm. and the fact that I had so much self-hate and denial going on. Mm. When I stopped drinking, I, I got a lot of insight. I got more, much more of an overview of how I had been behaving. And then I was able to accept love from a different kind of man. And there is no way that I would have considered Tony. Yeah. There's yeah. just no way. I just would have, I didn't get it. You know, why would he be nice to me? Why would he turn up? Why would he ring me when he said he would? Why do people do that weird stuff? Mm. Like, you know, mm. it would have baffled me. And also, I suppose I would have thought, where's the challenge? Mm. Because for me, it was about chasing something unattainable. It was just another way of stopping myself being alone with myself. And also, I suppose, when, which we'll talk about in a bit, but when you you went into rehab and when you have that moment to reflect, I suppose, in that moment, what you probably did is reflect on how these relationships was like pick, picking up a drink. Yeah. You know, it, like how, yeah. how, how those highs interlinked. Yes. I mean, very much so that they were both destructive relationships and that they wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been drunk at the time. Mm. You know, I had very bad judgment when I was drunk. Most people do. And I mean, I hear some people in early recovery now talking about how they miss the excitement and the drama because it is, it is nice for a while. Um, it makes you feel alive, doesn't it? Does it does make you feel alive. For a very short period. Yeah, like the wrong sort of alive maybe. Yeah. But yeah, it can be confused with the real thing. Mm. So yeah, they were definitely for me, they were both both connected and they were both about looking for peace outside of myself. Mm. It was looking for something external to make me feel okay. Mm. Well, you, that's what you've um, written about so beautifully. You said, I spent my entire 20s looking to be completed, hoping for a man to appear out of nowhere and polyfiller all the holes in my soul. I thought love was jealous misunderstandings, shouty departures, slam doors, dramatic reunions, and finally a perfect life in which I'd never again have to face loneliness, insecurity, infidelity, abandonment, fear or boredom. A glittering lacquer called love would overlay this union, delivering a steady feed of those similar to cocaine chemicals that happen at the start of a relationship. This lacquer would take care of itself, requiring no input from me or polyfiller man. It's the most perfect paragraph. Oh my God, and I identify you. with it so much that it's, it is a kind of... You are almost kind of just when you're looking for those kind of mad relationships to suddenly yeah. heal you, you are kind of being a bit of a baby because you're like, I'm taking no, no responsibility. responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely. But I am very immature. I always was. You know, I still hate any kind of unpleasantness mm. and I would still like to feel happy all the time. Yeah. I was. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus, most people do. Like, yeah. would any of us willingly welcome pain, mm. you know? But I think that it's when you find it hard to accept the realities That's, of life. Yes. Life on life's off, terms. Yeah, yes. You can go off and find all these distractions that you think will make you exempt from the rules of life. Yes. God, you're so wise. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Oh, I don't feel it. You are. So do you ever miss that kind of tussle, the kind of waiting for the call or... I cannot tell you how much I don't miss it. Mm, I am so grateful not to be that person and not to live like that. And it's funny, I lived in London through the worst parts of my drinking. And every time I'm back here, it's like the intervening years 
never really happened. I've, I've, it's very easy to access those feelings again. Mm. And just the utter fear. I, I'm so glad it's not like that now. Yeah. I really am. Which leads us on very nicely to your final love story, which is a story of everlasting love. Okay. Again, the fear of being smited. But um, I, uh, I love my uh, man. Um, is it okay to say that? <laughs> yeah, and he acts like he loves me. And I just feel so bloody lucky. I mean, luck has so much to do with it. I totally agree. Just meeting the right person at the right time. And things I said earlier, like uh, compatibility and sharing the same political views, things like that become important. Mm. You know, I used to think like I didn't care about what way a person voted, but I really care. I couldn't be with a Tory, you know. I couldn't be with a person who didn't want to legalise abortion. Like things like that are actually, they're quite way down in the foundation of a relationship. Like yeah. they really matter. Yeah. And, and who a person is. Yes. And like, I don't know what's going to happen with me and him. Because life is incredibly unpredictable. And it's that thing that I said earlier of like, we are all strangers to ourselves. And he might think he loves me now, but something might happen. But right now, and I'm touching wood, you know, we are very kind to each other. And he makes me laugh more than anyone else on earth. And he's on my side and I'm on his mm. And I feel the funny, you know, people think because, you know, he's often described as my manager, which he's not. Um, but like I'm this kind of fragile flower that needs to be taken care of. I'm not a fragile flower. I take care of him just yeah. as much as he takes care of me. You know, in many ways, I am strong and I feel very tenderly about him. And um, I just feel I feel so lucky. And I think if you are lucky enough to have that connection with somebody, it's worth fighting for. Because like, I went through a very bad spell, which I've talked about a lot. And I had four and a half years of, I don't know how to describe it, bad mental health. And I wanted him to leave me because I didn't want the responsibility. I couldn't bear seeing him so miserable. And I couldn't bear the fact that I couldn't make him happy. I didn't want to make him happy. Like all my energy was taken up with myself. Mm. And I'm so grateful that he stuck with me. You know, I was just thinking that this morning, you know, how how lucky I am that he didn't go and that, you know, I came back to myself. And now it's, and I hate this phrase as well, but it is better than ever. You know, the way like the, it's such a cliche, but I think if you go through something really grim mm. and survive it, mm. you're different. Mm. You know, it may not be better. It may not be worse. It's different. It's, you know, it has shifted. And another thing is, sorry. But no, I, think, I can yeah, hear you talk about this forever. I think if you're with somebody for a long time, you live through countless relationships. Yeah. You know, you have the first, whatever, 18, and 18 months where like it's mad riding around the clock and it's, you know, it's very, it's chemicals, it's passion, it's, it's sex. And then they start to trickle away as, you know, because they just do, because, you know, they have a lifespan. And then a lot of people panic at that stage and think, oh, my God, 
I have stopped loving them. But it's not that. It's just that you're moving into a different phase. Totally. And, and it's like a third being, isn't yes, it? The relationship. it is. Because it is also alive and mm. it is morphing. You know, sometimes often in response to circumstances and often not. And I will say one thing that I have found very important. Like at the age of 19, that if you t- told me that feeling comfortable and content with a man was in my future, I would have like, I, I just would have wanted to like fling myself off a bridge because the last thing I wanted was to be content. Like the dullness of it, the boredom of it. Mm. Now, to be content is like the greatest gift Mm. that anyone could have. To not be full of the longing that we talked about And it's not a given for everyone. Oh, it's absolutely not. If you have it, cherish it. If you don't have it, try and find it. And if it's not happening with that person, Ask yourself, do you need it? And if you need it, try and find it elsewhere. Yeah, because we only get the one life and we deserve as much love and peace as we can have, as any one person can have in their life. I had no vision of a future for me, ever. Mm. Like not from a very young age. Like I could never imagine having a career or or a marriage Mm. or... A family, like I didn't have a family, but you know, when girls are young, you know, they want to be things mm. from very early on. I just thought there will be nothing for me. Yeah. I, I was an, a nihilist at a really young age. And you, it sounds like you met Tony at sort of the most profound moment of change of your life. Yes. Yeah. Because I was so open to mm. something different. Because mm. you'd just come out of rehab, yeah. hadn't you? Yeah. yeah. And so I knew him beforehand. But when I came out, I was different. I suppose I'd learned so much when I was in there. I'd learned about my patterns and I'd learned about, uh, you know, my self-hatred. And, uh, and that there was no point compounding that with somebody else. I mean, I could treat myself badly enough. I didn't need another person to join in. Mm. You know, I was plenty able to destroy myself on my own. Mm. So, yeah, he was nice to me. And, and you I, were open to And that, I maybe. was open. I yeah. thought, it's unusual. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not really sure how to deal with it, but I'll go with it. And it was good. It was wonderful. And you were friends first, weren't yes. you? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We used to do all these kind of sweet 1950s things like go to the movies and, uh, and he'd collect me in his car. I'd never had a boyfriend with a car because they were all not car types. We put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Night bus types. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, it's so weird that I know all this about your relationship, yeah. but it was about eight months, wasn't it, before you then started yes. going out? Yes. Yes. And then yes. three months later engaged. Yes. 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 So moved quite fast. It did. When you know, you know. Yeah. And I knew. My final thing that I want to quote back to you that you've said, and I know that this will embarrass you that you said it, but it's it's everything that I think love should be. You said, I know God doesn't do bargains, but I'd happily live in a shoebox with Tony. I'd happily lose absolutely everything to keep him. Most people dream of feeling this way about someone. And I just wanted to know, to a single 29-year-old girl, if you have any advice. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. If somebody behaves badly, be brave. 
Don't let desperation let you be shortchanged. Yeah, don't shortchange yourself mm. because you're lonely or because you feel this is your last chance. There's no such thing as last chance. You know, like we're all living so much longer. There is so much time left to find the right person. I mean, some amount of compromise is necessary, but don't compromise on how a person treats you. If somebody cannot be kind to you, you should not give them the gift of your company. You deserve better. We all deserve better. Marianne Keys, I, along with the rest of the world, love you so, so much. Oh, thank you for sharing thank your love you. stories with me. I love you me. too. I do. <laughs> thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. Mm-hmm.